Blog Talk Radio. Cyber uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. This is Chuck Morse emanating from Boston, and I'd like to welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, emanating from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, pretty good uh, indeed. Uh, we had a, um, uh, a home screening last night of a uh, documentary on the Koch brothers, and uh, the screening of the documentary was recorded by a documentary film crew from the Canadian Broadcast uh, Corporation uh, for a documentary they're doing on home screenings, which will be broadcast on October 25th. Did you follow all so, of that? <laughs> so they, they're doing a documentary on documentaries. They're, no, they're doing uh, a documentary. And they're, being, oh, uh, they're doing right. a documentary on the distribution process of getting DVDs out to people's homes and then people inviting their friends. It's a it's a okay. way around the theater gatekeepers. Right, but of course you you can't charge for that because it's a royalty issue. Right. No, we don't we don't charge for right. that. Can uh, I think that you said that um, I would be getting a copy of that film because I'd like to see that. Yes, as, well since I no longer need it because I've done it I can ship it out to you today and maybe right. we could interview a, a one of the uh, filmmakers or someone associated with it uh, yes as a matter of fact we can because um, we I talked about this um, yeah. I, I think last week and uh, from what I gathered in that conversation and again I haven't seen it but um, it didn't sound to me like there's anything particularly damning against the Koch brothers uniquely at least nothing more than you could say about any other business but uh, I'll have to see the film firsthand, of course, to know. Uh, well, let's, and let's I guess it depends. It depends on how you look at things and and why one would want to look at a particular business. Uh, that's well. It's actually on the Koch brothers' political involvement. And, and let's just say that um, if it had been about uh, your favorite friend um, George Soros, um, the late uh, Andrew Breitbart would have been proud. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure that you could have said this. I mean, it's a shocker of shocks. The, uh, the Koch brothers support conservative causes. Wow, that's that's going to knock me off my chair. But anyway, Patrick, I want to uh, talk about. I want to bring up two things. Okay, we have two minutes to uh, the audience introduction. Firstly, have you seen the latest polls? Uh, yes, I did, and I know that the Gallup poll shows that uh, Romney is up by four uh, in a matchup, and I also yeah. noticed that. Uh, the real clear uh, average of all the polls has still has Obama up by one and a half. Uh, but as you you know as well as I do that that if Obama was up by twenty points at this point in the uh, the the campaign, it would be meaningless. Well, the Gallup poll though is is not a conservative poll. I mean, we talked about 
Rasmussen yep. and uh, Fox TV having, Oba- uh, having Romney up within the margin of error. This yes, one has Romney up 48 to 43, which is outside the margin of error. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's, it's sure. really extraordinary. Uh, it, it is. Um, the um, um, Rasmussen poll has Obama up by seven. The uh, General Electric poll, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different things here. There's um, right. a lot of different polls are all over the place, which is, you know, where things are now. But, uh, no, that, that's extraordinary. Uh, interestingly enough, I was actually called on that poll. Yeah, I remember you told me that, and, and of course the other the other aspect of these polls that's not mentioned is that there's a pretty large number of people who are undecided. Mm-hmm. I think it averages between eight and ten percent. Of course, yeah. And, and that generally favors the challenger. I mean, I think that uh, it was none other than Dickie Morris who did a study on this, and he looked at the challenges going back to Eisenhower. I'm not Eisenhower. I mean Goldwater. And he showed that the challenger, whether it be Democrat or Republican, usually captured about 8% of the undecided vote if the undecided vote was in play in the final week of the election. Well, we shall see, because uh, everybody is saying that this year is going to be unlike every other year. Let's take a, a quick break and, and welcome right. in our, um, our affiliates, so don't go away. to fairness who is that patrick that was d jelly uh walter strauss will be with us on friday excellent fairness radio with chuck morrison dr patrick o'heffern and monday through friday went to 3 p.m uh of course our host is cyber station usa radio network and our online partner is blog talk radio i'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations wwpr in bradenton florida and kskq in ashland oregon uh, you're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806. That number again, 424-675-6806. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm very good. As I was saying earlier, I had a, a home screening last night of a documentary film, and the screening itself was filmed by a documentary film crew, so I will be in a documentary shown on television in Canada. Right? Oh, really? In You'll October. be on the oh, – great. Are you, oh, is no. your name going to appear in the credits? Uh, I don't want to be in the credits. I'll be on screen talking, and they'll identify me. Did you mention Fairness Radio? <laughs> oh, you know, I didn't do that. Darn. That's oh, a yes, throw in a plug. Oh, great. Yes, I did when I introduced myself. Good, because, yeah. I mean, obviously, as as a partner, as talk radio partners, we have to do take any little opportunity to um, – to get the word out. Yes. Uh, uh, Patrick, I want to bring up a little something. This yeah. is classic political agitprop, and it almost, I'm getting a little bit of a toothache even thinking about what you're going to say. <laughs> okay. but, uh, but here goes. I'm walking right, I'm stepping in it. Okay. Let's just put it that way. Yesterday you made a comment that had, was totally uh, an undigestible remark that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. And when you, when you threw out this talking point that is, presented by the Democratic campaign, and it's being echoed very vigorously in the Democratic echo chambers. And that is this charge that the Republican Party is at war with, quote, the middle class, unquote. Uh, 
Now, Patrick, exactly how does that work? Um, Could you please explain that? Which aspect of it? <laughs> how is the Republican Party at war with the middle class? Well, um, if you'll recall, that this this was a, um, a a quick back and forth between you and I, and and um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna walk back a little bit on that, okay, Chuck? You you, you mm-hmm. caught me, and mm-hmm. I'll confess. Um, the Republican Party uh, itself, uh, I I would say until. Oh, probably the beginning of, of the the last Bush administration has not been at war with the middle class. The Republican Party has actually represented a, a segment of the middle class, a, a big chunk of the middle class since the 1950s. Uh, however, there has always been a part of the, of the Republican Party, generally associated with the John Birch Society and um, and global corporations, that have found that it's um, uh, for ideological purposes and economic purposes that uh, re- cutting Benefits to the uh, for the middle class, things like Pell grants and um, um, uh, college tuition and, and support for uh, um, infrastructure, etc., um, is ideologically uh, in tune with that part of the the Republican Party, and it also um, creates uh, an atmosphere in which global corporations can reduce their tax burden and not have to pay their fair share. That accelerated when the, the Tea Party came online and to the point now in which the Republican Party seems to have been totally taken over by an extreme right wing, uh, tea, uh, which is now called the Tea Party, Americans for Progress, and their entire ideological platform is to eliminate all those things that government does for the middle class and shift taxes from the wealthy to the middle class. So that's how it works. That, of course, is my opinion, and we can we well, have wait a minute. should have more stories on it. If they're shifting wealth from the wealthy to the middle class, then how? That's not a war in the middle class. That's helping the middle class. I'm sorry, but I want to ask shifting wealth from the middle class to the wealthy. Oh, I guess statistically it's, it's, demonstrable. Must be, a, must be a slip of the tongue. But Patrick, first yes. of all, can you uh, putting aside? I'd wonder if you can name a single so-called global corporation. That's conservative. But putting that aside for a second. Well, Walmart? What, yeah, and, <laughs> okay. and, you, General, and your claim is, you, <laughs> I know, General Electric actually is totally in the tank with Obama. They, they paid zero taxes last year because John yeah, Kerry, so. who's not a conservative, was a, ran on the platform of having the uh, all of their capital gains taxes eliminated. But as far I, as, I would say Obama's in the tank with General Electric. but that's, Thank you very much. So right. I don't think you can say they're conservative. And uh, Walmart, I'm not so sure. They have, well, only because they're attacked by the left, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily conservative. But how well, do you equate the global corporations with the John Birch Society? That seems like a bit of a stretch. I mean, the John Birch Society is the most anti-corporate group I've ever interviewed. Anti-corporate? Yes. Whoa. You don't know anything about them, Patrick. I know the Birch Society. I've interviewed them for years. They're against global – they're against both globalism from the perspective of corporations and governments. They're they're the most – they're they're generally small business types. I mean, they want to have everything local, and they're not into global corporations, unless you can show me some evidence otherwise. Uh, In in my – and and, and obviously I can't pull it up right now, but but, – it, in my opinion, the the Birch Society, like many other things in this country, has changed, and they have been uh, um, infiltrated, or now their membership is largely coterminous with the Club for Growth. Not at all. Not, Not at all. And, and, and you know, so we just had Jack McManus on this program, who's the president of the Birch Society. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have them back because Maybe I mean, we should. 
I've interviewed them over the years. I know a little bit about them. They're not interested in global anything. They're against global corporate, global government. That's the whole raison d'etre of that, of that group's existence. And I'm not bringing it up because I necessarily agree with them. I don't. But uh, I just think that to lump them in, and also your claim that the global corporations are somehow conservative, I don't think so. I think the bigger you go in, in big, big corporations like Google and like uh, Apple and, and the rest, they tend, and Buffett and them, they tend to be liberals. And well, I well, think first that of all, this idea Chuck, that Chuck, yeah. I think you're you're, you're stretching the term liberal quite a bit uh, when it comes to uh, the, the laws they support, the taxes they pay, the ideology that drives them. It is totally profit generated, and, and actually I, I've said this before: they're neither liberal nor conservative; they're profit making, and they don't right. really care who's in office, and they don't really care about things like abortion and gay rights and all that sort of stuff, as long as they get to increase their profits every month. Well, so why would you saying, assume... So I won't say they're conservative, and you don't say they're liberal. They're well, you did say they were conservative, and you claimed that they were in collusion with the Birch Society. And also, as far as being profit-driven, I'm not sure that's necessarily conservative. I think that uh, I didn't say also... it was conservative. I said they're neither liberal nor conservative. We have to take a break. We have a guest on the line. Great. Okay. All right. Let's go to a break. And we're joined by Jim Dean. He is the director of Democracy for America, brother of Howard Dean, uh, former candidate for president. Jim, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Chuck, uh, Patrick, thanks for very much for having me on. Jim, I am with you, and I congratulate you. I think that you're involved in a legitimate constitutional effort in terms of getting a ballot, uh, getting a, uh, an amendment to the Constitution that would uh, circumvent uh, the Citizens for United decision. Uh, that decision, of course, I, I agree with it technically in that the Supreme Court was doing what it's supposed to do, which is look at the Constitution and uphold it. But I also agree with you in that the way to get a, different, a change in the way we govern ourselves in this country is to get the Constitution changed. And it looks to me like you're doing it the right way, not the wrong way, which is to just get judges to do it willy-nilly from the bench. You're actually going through the effort of having an amendment uh, passed, and I support you. I think it's a great idea. Well, Chuck, I appreciate it. Um, what we're actually spending a lot of time on right now is uh, helping folks in uh, both states and communities who want to uh, do something about this. Uh, an amendment process, as you know, takes a very, very long time. Right. Um, but there are a lot of cities and towns uh, and states um, who are uh, trying uh, to pass legislation um, that would take uh, big money for, out of politics. 
and um, and I think everybody that's something that uh, actually is a pretty bipartisan uh, has pretty bipartisan support. Right, it does. Uh, as far as I can tell, so uh, that's something that you know we believe you got to put points up on the board, and um, so we're working to try to get the uh, law passed in New York State and a few other places that are uh, contemplating this, as well as some other things. And uh, right now we're on a uh, there is a campaign to try to uphold the Montana ele- fi- yes. campaign finance reform laws, which we're involved in as well. Well, I mean, again, I think you're going about it the right way. Getting an amendment to the Constitution is then, of course, the Supreme Court will come back and they'll rule against it because it'll be part of the Constitution, and that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to look at the Constitution. Although I must ask you, Jim, from a political standpoint, this could come back and bite you guys in the backside in that uh, a lot of the biggest donors in this country tend to be Democrats and liberals. Patrick and I just talked about global corporations tend to be more Democratic than Republican, although they tend to pick the side that they think is going to win. And I'll give you an example of where it's hurt one of your candidates, these sorts of uh, campaign limits, that being here in Massachusetts, Lizzie Warren. She got a million and a half dollars from a special outside state interest group, and then uh, her opponent, Senator Scott Brown, got a half a million dollars from Carl Rove's group, uh, which is a third of what she got. And then she and Scott came to an agreement, a handshake, that neither of them would accept any uh, monies coming in from outside groups. They would discourage it. They would not accept any super PAC money. And that immediately following that, Lizzie's uh, poll numbers went fell like a stone. Now they tend to be running close, although Scott's a little bit ahead by maybe an average of two points, but within the margin of error. But I, I only bring it up because, you know, this is, could, could end up hurting Democrats because you guys get the big money. No, I don't think uh, – actually, I would disagree with that, Chuck. Uh, I mean, first of all, as a point of fact, um, you know, if you look at the, 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 the reports that have been issued in these two campaigns, uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign uh, is far and away uh, except more is funded by small contributions. Uh, Scott Brown's campaign is not, and in fact, most of his contributions uh, over the last several quarters have come from big Wall Street uh, invent, or members of the investment banking community. Um, I, look, the point is this, um, and, and I think Elizabeth Warren would absolutely concur with this, that um, you know, public participation uh, is, is extremely important, um, but having elections driven by uh, big money, uh, no matter where it comes from, uh, it frankly hurts the process. Uh, you know, all the candidates play by the rules and the deck that they're given with them, uh, under the circumstances, but the fact is, is that um, uh, you know, I I'm just looking at look. My home state of Connecticut is public financing of local connection, elections. It has been a home run uh, democracy for America. Uh, can right. I actually contribute uh, to candidates who are running for legislature? Uh, the the aggregate total of money that is being spent on these races is far less than what it used to be. And all of the problems that we had, like losing $250 million in our pension fund because of an Enron round trade, trip trade, something that was a contract steered legally, uh, but we don't have those problems anymore. And frankly, the public financing of elections in Connecticut is stav- saving the taxpayers' money. Well, no, again, I agree with you in that uh, the Massachusetts example is not so much what each candidate is getting in terms of the state donations. That's something that we could take a look at their FEC filings on. What I'm talking about are these super PAC donations from coming from out of state, in which case 
Elizabeth Warren was getting three times as much money, and then after she signed the pact with Scott Brown, she regretted it because they neither of them accepted it, and, and she ended up being hurt by that more than him. So, uh, you know, the, uh, as far as state laws that deal with uh, limiting campaign contributions, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the state of Montana should have a right to limit contributions. They make the illegitimate point that mining interests will take over the state. They've got a state issue. Um, in Massachusetts, of course, we had uh, a ballot initiative for, um, you, know, so, you know, so-called moneyless campaigns. I, I forget what they called it now. And it completely failed here. It passed. The people voted for it. But there was only one candidate that took advantage of it that being Steve Tolman, who ran for governor and lost by a big margin. I think he, he, they called him the million-dollar candidate. Um, so I guess that it, it really gets to a state's rights issue, which I support, and each state needs to craft their legislation in a way that fits their particular state. Yeah, you know, I, and it's interesting you mentioned that about the uh, ballot initiative in Massachusetts because uh, when Connecticut's law was passed um, – uh, and, and by the way, I'll mention this, Chuck. Uh, above the objections of the Democratic, uh, democratically controlled legislature, uh, it was the Republican Governor Jody Rell that said mm -hmm. she would find, sign a public financing bill, and then our members and a lot of other folks uh, really uh, supported it. And uh, but when it was passed, 85% of the legislative ca uh, candidates participated in it. Um, right. And, uh, and 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 so that you know obviously the participation part is, is important, but more importantly, I think voters are getting turned off um, by big money in politics. I you know I think if I look at for example Linda McMahon's uh, last Senate campaign, um, she spent a lot of money of her own money every a lot of her own money on this uh, it was something like fifty million dollars. Everybody knew about it, and while she was well liked in the press. Um, and, and, you know, for a while had decent poll numbers. Um, people were also – it was showing up in the polls that people were not comfortable um, with the fact that she was, you know, spending $50 million of her own money in this race. And I think where we want to get to this as much as anything else is um, the culture that we now have in Connecticut where, you know, if somebody comes in and says, I'm going to just throw a whole bunch of money around to get elected to office, uh, that money becomes too expensive. Uh, right. For those candidates, uh, and this is a cultural thing. This is not something that necessarily legislates. You know, the electorate expects candidates uh, to do more than just throw up a whole bunch of money and 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 do TV and direct mail. They, you know, they want to see the debate, uh, you know, a reasonable debate, and they want to see the candidates out there knocking on the doors as candidates should do, and as we encourage them to do in our training program. So, you know, I I, I think a lot of this uh, begets. Um, uh, and, 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 in fact, the Citizens United uh, thing is begetting a lot of debate on the subject, which I think is very healthy. And I Thank think you. the outcome of this is going to be some reform um, in this process. Uh, I do disagree with the Supreme Court ruling, by the way, I just for the record. Um, mm -hmm. I really don't think they were doing what they were supposed to do. But, look, it is what it is. And, um, you know, I'm not sitting there uh, kvetching about it because we've got to get something done about it. Well, again, I agree with you in that the right way to go about it is to get an amendment to the Constitution, and then the Supreme Court will re-rule on it based upon the new Constitution, that including the amendment. I think that it's a state issue, state by state, and Massachusetts uh, campaign finance completely failed, maybe because of our culture here. I don't know. Neither presidential candidates seem interested, that being Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. They're both 
not they're both uh, not taking advantage of uh, public financing. So, uh, but the only other question before I introduce Patrick is this: I haven't had a chance to read the amendment put forth by Bernie Sanders, uh, which is the one that you're backing. Um, that does it uh, include uh, unions or is it just co- uh, private companies? Um, I think the basic tenor of the amendment is that corporations are not people, and uh, this is something. Uh, if you want to. Uh, have a guest on. His name is Jeff Clemens, and he just wrote a book about this, as a matter of fact. And uh, mm-hmm. and it accurately points out that, in fact, corporations are creatures of the state. They are conferred, uh, an entity is conferred the status of a corporation, uh, and all of the benefits on, on, on limiting liability and all of the things that go with that um, for a certain economic benefit. Um, so that the idea that uh, all of a sudden that there are now people um, is is I think quite silly, and um, and I think the purpose of this amendment is to get that out of uh, the, you know the, the, the law or whatever it is to get that what you right. know, get undo well, the Supreme Court ruling for that. I, corporations are not people. That's just as simple as that. Well, I, I think it's also silly because the uh, Supreme Court never said that. But um, I guess you've answered my question, Jim, without answering it, which is that no, Bernie Sanders' amendment does not include unions. Let me introduce uh, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you, Chuck. And, uh, hi, Jim. It's good to have you back. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I have a couple of questions, but we got a lot of email. Uh, boy, this, uh, this apparently is a very hot topic. So I'll, I'll just say uh, the, uh, I think the American people are definitely on your side on this. I saw a, uh, a poll, the Common Cause poll, but still uh, they found that uh, when asked if um, – if they agree with the statement, I am worried that large political contributions will prevent Congress from tackling the important issues facing American, Americans today. 82% of Democrats agreed with that, 79% of independents agreed with that, and 77% of Republicans agreed with that. So that's, uh, that's pretty much apple pie and motherhood there. Yep, right. And I'm also um, interested, and I'm sure you took notes on this, that we have Chuck, who's a movement conservative to a certain degree, saying, you know, this is a state's rights thing, and maybe the state should be able to. So maybe there's some there's some bridging that can go on there, and I'm sure you, you noted that, Jim. Yeah, I, I have a general the general gist of where I feel about a lot of issues, Patrick, is that the Congress isn't going to get it done, uh, whether it's this, whether it's health care, whether it's a lot of other stuff, um, unless the states uh, and even municipalities – um, are out there getting it done first, and um, and and really that's the immediate opportunity uh, in a lot of states. Not everyone, but um, I mean, my goodness, last year we got it involved in something called Measure H, which limited the ability of uh, companies to donate to elected officials in the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It was a February election; the turnout was quite low. It did pass, um, but that's the kind of uh, you know the sort of thing that we're trying to work on now while this amendment process unfolds because, as we all know, it takes a long time for an amendment process to unfold, and we really don't feel like waiting around. I think there's a lot of landmark legislation we're going to see in the next two or three years, uh, and the more of it that passes, the more uh, that it's going to change the culture of our elections and hopefully get big money out of politics. Uh, chipping away, as we say. Yes. Well, let me read some emails to you, Jim. Um, sure. Cecilia Branson in Seattle uh, writes, I thought that there was no connection between the super PACs and the candidates, that if the candidates 
say that they're not going to take super PAC money. It doesn't really control what the super PACs can do. They can come in and run all the advertising they want. And secondly, super PACs are not candidates. So as far as I know, they wouldn't be covered by an amendment to the Constitution or Bernie Sanders' amendment. Is she right on either of those? Um, I think those are fair points, and uh, and I, 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 you know, I'm not sure. Um, well, first, let me go to the first part about it. Super PACs are, in fact, depending on how they're legally constructed, but most of them are prohibited from coordinating with campaigns, uh, and in fact, uh, basically, can go out and do things on their own. Um, now, it's not too difficult to figure out, uh, you know, just by reading the newspapers. Um, uh, about you know getting on message and all of those things, um, but the fact is that super PACs do operate independently. Um, <clears throat> nonetheless, um, you know in prior years, uh, most political action work was governed by the Federal Elections Committee or the uh, com- uh, Commission uh, or the IRS. So um, the thing about them was that you know people had to report. Um, what was uh, being, what they were contributing, and uh, and those the names of those folks had to be fully disclosed, um, and uh, that has gone by the wayside in the wake of this ruling. And uh, you know, I'm not an election lawyer, so I'm not going to get too far down this road. Uh, but she's right in the fact that PACs can do whatever they want, um, and it is very difficult, if not impossible, for either the Warren campaign or the Brown campaign uh, to control exactly what they're going to do. Um, now, as to how this proceeds um, with this Sanders amendment, um, there's going to be a lot of legislation that gets passed before that, um, and I and I can't, you know, I don't think the Sanders amendment actually specifically talks about super PACs, but you are seeing Patrick and Chuck right now a lot of states that are demanding or passing or considering legislation that demands full disclosure. Uh, some states like Minnesota already have this. Um, uh, and others like California and Maryland and others are are are, are uh, it, going through the process now, where um, particularly companies um, with publicly traded companies are going to have to disclose uh, their political contributions. Um, and uh, you're also seeing that actually happen with shareholder uh, initiatives within those companies themselves. So I think um, you know I'm not sure whether the super PACs are actually going to get covered in an amendment process at this point, uh, but I am quite certain um, that super PACs are going to be a, a very different entity in a very short period of time uh, because they're going to have to disclose their donors and because states are going to be taking a very hard look at their conduct and uh, making sure that they do not, in fact, coordinate. Well, that brings up an interesting question uh, when you said that um, public companies, and of course that would exclude companies like the Koch brothers, the Koch industries, yes. or Facebook for that matter. Uh, so, which are I don't know about Facebook, but you know there's some big players out there that are private private companies. But uh, leaving that uh, to the side for a second, uh, the super PACs operate as nonprofit organizations. Uh, Crossroads claims that it is a social welfare nonprofit. Um, that seems to me like that's a huge loophole in the IRS legislation, and isn't possibly getting that IRS legislation uh, amended another route you could take so that uh, nonprofits that uh, essentially do nothing but support political campaigns, A, can't do it, and B, have to have to reveal all their donors? 
Uh, I, you know, that is a big, big deal. Uh, you have just touched on something that is is the unspoken third rail in Washington. <laughs> I mean, and I, and I laugh about this because Democracy for America is not a non-for-profit. I mean, we're a political action committee. There's, we're not tax-deductible. Our contributions to us are not tax-deductible. There's no C in DFA. Um, but as you, we all know, there is plenty of C and lots of other organizations, uh, some of whom we really like uh, and uh, and do great work, and others whom we frankly fight against uh, because of their uh, either ideological difference of opinion or other things. And mm-hmm. um, and I do think that that, frankly, to be honest with you, and I and I have to be candid here, um, I I think there has to be a lot more clarity in this. Um, in terms of following the rules, which is not easy, by the way, in all fairness to everybody, it's not easy uh, to follow uh, IRS dictum on this and 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 do the right thing in terms of being a real not-for-profit organization. Um, but I, I think you know there is a very very uh, blur gray area about what constitutes political activity. And what constitutes, uh, you know, not-for-profit activity, and that line is being crossed every single day. And um, so we are going to have to see some work done in this area. And, and look, as much as I love uh, uh, a lot of organizations that do good work, it's going to be better for everybody if there is clarity in this area, because as you pointed out, that line is, I think, in most people's minds, being crossed. And uh, and I believe that it's being crossed every single day. You know, Jim, I'm looking at the uh, amendment on your website, Democracy for America, Bernie Sanders Amendment, and Patrick is right. It says nothing about uh, the so-called nonprofit, the super PACs, which are nonprofits, and that includes both left-wing and right, uh, that are really the big players when it comes to these contributions. I mean, the corporations themselves are not giving money. I mean, they, they, they set up these... Uh, Nonprofit super PACs on both left and right. I mean, we could take a look at the Tides Foundation and others on the left. And they're the ones that are giving the big money. It also says nothing about unions. And, look, unions, I mean, you know, we can argue about the nature of unions, but the fact is that they are a democratic special interest, and they are the largest givers to political campaigns in the country. I'm not sure about that, Chuck, but... But Wait a minute. Take, take a, a look point. at the last. Take a look at the election of '08. I don't know what they did in '10, but if you take a look at the top ten organizations that are big contributors to political campaigns, the unions are on the top of those lists consistently, and they overwhelmingly give to Democratic and liberal candidates. I think it's something like 85 percent. So look, I think that if there's going to be a constitutional amendment that's going to get money out of politics. You know, you you have to sit down and do it in a nonpartisan way. You're obviously just trying to go after those whom you perceive to be against you, and you're leaving alone those who are with you, and that's not fair. It either is going to be in or out. Well, first uh, of all, I I, I, uh, I I would take some exception to this thing on this. I mean, if you add up, for example, the money that's been spent on Scott Walker's side versus the money that's been spent on his opponents inside, either in the elections that held, were held in the Wisconsin recall last year or the one that's going on this year, it's like 10 to 1, um, with the labor being the 1 and, and the companies like the Koch brothers being the 10 part. I mean, it, you know, they are being outspent right and left. Um, but your point on this thing is well taken. I'm not sure about and, that. Um, you know, I, you know, honestly, um, I, you know, I think there are labor political action committees 
Um, and uh, but labor's you know labor itself is a grassroots movement, and um, I I don't think in many respects um, that you know it's unfair um, to have the members express themselves um, on this uh, sort of the way that Democracy for America does. You know we we sure we might contribute to candidates, uh, but the real work that gets done on this stuff is really on the members' part, and they can choose to do that or not to do it. Um, you know whether we, when, when, if we ask them to do it, you know they responded very well to Elizabeth Warren's campaign, but they happen to be doing that as individuals um, out of their own pocket, um, and uh, so you know I think a system like that is reasonably fair. And then finally, on the constitutional amendment part, an amendment is very different than legislation. And again, I'm not an attorney, so I don't want to, you know, get too far out on a limb here. But I, it seems to me that um, a lot of the things, Chuck, that you're talking about are going to have to be legislated both at the state and the federal level in this thing. And I think that can be done in a fair way um, that incorporates both sides of the aisle uh, because it doesn't do any good to load it up on one side or another. And let's face it, exactly. the Republicans have spent, spent uh, a lot of time loading it up on their side, and it's time to, to level the playing field for everybody. Well, we That's have right. a, a break coming up. Um, uh, Jim, can you stay a little longer? Is that all right, Chuck? Uh, sure. Okay. Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, let, let's take a, um, a, a very quick station identification break, and uh, we will be right back. We are back. Our guest is Jim Dean. He's with Democracy for America. We're talking about a, uh, their backing of a constitutional amendment uh, being sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders that would um, limit, uh, put limits on election spending. Uh, Jim, the only line in this um, amendment, and I'm reading it off of your website, that I think is actually balanced is the third line, which says, Congress and states shall have the power to set reasonable limits on election spending. I think that's something that all sides agree on. That's not a partisan issue. That is a mother and apple pie issue. The states should have a right to set uh, election laws. They should have a right to regulate um, how much money and, and transparency uh, with regards to can campaigns. But, but, you know, then I think it goes off the rails on the rest of it. it it's very skewed. Uh, first of all, the, the, there's nothing in, in any uh, Supreme Court initiative that ever referred to um, corporations as people. That's an urban myth. And but but the general attack on corporations, I view, is an attack on the right to assemble. People have a right to come together and to speak as a group, whether it be a corporation, whether it be a union, whether it be Acorn, whether it be a local group, and that that's a basic principle. And if you're going to have an amendment that says that um you, you know that that the government has a right to regulate such matters that you know and, and single out corporations what that really does is it brings the government into the right to regulate the speech of any group ultimately and i think that's wrong i think it's one thing to regulate money in campaigns and to tell corporations they can't do it or to limit what they do but to get into this idea that the government can regulate what they do and how they speak that that to me crosses a line 
Chuck, we have to identify ourselves. You're listening to Fairness you, Radio Chuck. with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station uh, USA Network, and our radio affiliate. Sorry, I had to get get that in. Oh, and this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing. Go ahead, Jim. Hey. I'm sorry. Jim? Yeah, you know, I, here's the problem. I have a very serious problem with um, uh, companies uh, giving being given the same rights as people. Uh, they aren't people, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, they are entities that are created by <clears throat> the government with the support, theoretically, of the voters uh, for a certain economic benefit. But, uh, you know, to, to, to start using words like the right to assemble – um, in, in the same sentence as a company, I think is uh, you know it doesn't really sit well with me, Chuck. And I have to say that um, that right to assemble obviously extends to you know employees as individuals or, sure. or anybody as an individual. Um, but there's, there's no reason that it should extend group, whether it be a corporation a, or a union or anyone else. Right. It's, uh, it, it, these are just organized means of people getting together for a common purpose. In the case of a corporation, it's to create a good or service. But it, it, the fact is that it's you know as such they have a right to speak. You know, you and I both know, Chuck, that as an employee of a company, uh, you know, to mix up the right of assembly uh, with say my employment at say Exxon um, mm-hmm. is not doesn't really work. Um, well, it does if you have a union. Thirty percent of labor, Chuck. Thirty percent of labor union members in Ohio have voted Republican um, for a very, very long time, at least up until <laughs> the uh, referendum on SB5 last year. But they, they had done that. I mean, they were right. doing this out of their own free will. But, you know, when you get into a company situation like this, where this is your employment, uh, that's very different than a labor union. And, uh, and, you know, then it becomes a very different issue. And I think, again, to mix in a company uh, with the right to assemble is wrong. I, I disagree, I Jim. I think that if I could just quickly say, the yeah, but the, uh, the the individual who works for a company can assemble with a union and have their voices heard, or they can join some other group and have their voices heard, and the company has its voices heard. These are all forms of organization, and they all have a right to have their voices heard like an individual. That doesn't mean they are individuals. Nobody has ever suggested that. That's one of these myths. Patrick? Uh, yeah, cu- a couple of things. First of all, uh, the Tice Foundation doesn't make political contributions. It's a foundation, and it's 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 regulated by a different part of the code, which uh, does not allow uh, uh, political foundations. As far as uh, the top donors, the uh, all-time top donors, 1989 to 2012 on um, MapLite are ActBlue, and ActBlue is a, a liberal organization, and I'm sure, Jim, you know it well, followed yep. by AT&T. The American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, a union. The National Association of Realtors, a Republican union. Uh, um, association, uh, which donates Republican. Service Employees International Union, a union, donates Democratic. And uh, the National Education Association donates union. Democratic. Uh, u- yes. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, a corporation, which Liberal. donates uh, uh, no. Republican. Yes, they are. Uh, so those are the uh, the American Association for Justice, a liberal organization which donates mostly Democratic, the Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which donates mostly Democratic, and the American Federation of Teachers, which donates Democratic. However, there's a footnote, and the footnote says this excludes super PACs and PACs set up by unions, corporations, and individuals. And as Jim well knows, it's the super PACs and PACs that, are, that will spend at 
probably at least as much money as the uh, the campaigns in general. And in fact, we're now seeing that the the uh, the, the global um, crossroads super PAC uh, is talking about spending a third of a billion dollars, all of it on Republicans. So you have to look at uh, several different aspects of this. Well, Patrick, I agree with that. The the super PACs seem to be outside of Bernie Sanders. Uh, amendments and also the super PACs divide yeah. up fairly evenly between liberal and conservative. No, they don't. Not, not oh, at all. yes, no, I do. Not in terms of money. No, no, no. no, no, no. Come Obama on. Obama just now. set up a super PAC. You're, you're, no you're, you're, not, you're so no, far I'm not off wrong. On that one, Chuck. What about Obama's super PAC? They're, they're yeah. up, they, they claim to be uh, potentially raising a billion dollars. I mean, they're all. No, the campaign, you know, yes, they are. That's not, that's not even close to what's being spent. I mean, well, they may not do it, but Sheldon yeah, Adelson and and Foster Freeze and all these other guys that are you know throwing uh, you know yeah, huge sums of money into this. You know, look, I mean, George they, Soros, they, George Soros has. A, yeah. yeah, he gave four million dollars to MoveOn.org to to uh, beat uh, move George MoveOn.org is not a campaign and it's not a PAC. Well, it's, it's, it's and neither of these groups. And, and neither of these. And, and Patrick, neither of these groups. Uh, these yes, are they organizations. Are. They donate money to campaigns. No, and, and I think that MoveOn.org is a PAC, if, if I'm not mistaken. No, MoveOn.org has a PAC. It's a very small PAC. Okay. It's probably less than $10 million. It's a, it's a membership organization, and, Jim, you probably know MoveOn quite well. The $4 million you talked about was given to it 10 years ago. Fine. The, okay. the, what, what, the, this year, it looks like Mitt Romney is going to be elected, yeah, which, which, so there's more corporate money pouring into that side because they want to support the winner. But the fact is that you've got a fairly even split generally, and corporations no, tend no. to be nonpartisan. Well, they listen, give no, the winner. Not an even split. Nope. Nope. It, yeah, it's it's not an even split. But, Chuck, more importantly, um, you know, companies like this gambling on who's going to win and who's going to lose, the fact of the matter is, a lot of Wall Street money, and particularly Goldman Sachs, is going to Mitt Romney right now. Yeah, this what year. does that say about what kind of a president Mitt Romney is going to be? I mean, this well, thing could be argued about Scott Brown. I mean, who were they going to be answering to Obama when they're in, in office? 08. They gave to Obama in 08, which so is why talking, a lot of his cabinet members are Goldman now, Sachs talking, employees. We're no, we're not. Now. But my point is that they give to whoever they think is going to win, which is why Obama got more Wall Street money in 08 than any candidate in history. Now they, don't, they know Mark Romney is probably going to win, so they switch sides. And I agree yeah, Chuck, with you. Chuck, this is not yeah, right. Chuck, I know, but Chuck, yeah, who does that make them beholden to? I mean, this is Scott it, it Brown's problem It makes both parties right beholden to He's Wall Street. He's a Wall Street guy. We agree. We agree, Jim. Both parties are equally beholden to Wall Street. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're disagreeing here. I'm just simply pointing out that this is not a partisan issue. It is an right. issue when it comes to corporate uh, giving. They tend to support the winner. They, they, they're pretty well assured that Romney is going to be elected, so they're supporting him this year. If they thought Obama would be winning, they'd be supporting him. Right. It, it is a bipartisan problem. I absolutely agree with you, Chuck, although I'll take my chances with Elizabeth Warren on this any day of the week over Scott Brown in terms of how she's going to conduct herself in the United States Senate. Well, we'll see what happens. Put, she'll put in the interest of the people first. I doubt that. Yeah, we'll see what happens on that one. Well, we have a couple more emails here. Sure. Um, uh, we, uh, Sticky Bean in St. Paul uh, asks a very basic question, which um, you can give us a basic answer, Jim, is why is DFA concerned about Citizens United? Aren't there other issues that are more important? There are a ton of other issues that are extremely important. Uh, and not the least of which is the war on women, the war on working families, oh, and, and there's a litany goes on and on and on. Um, I, 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 the reason that we're in this, though, is because this is the one issue that consistently comes up 
among our members. It might be number three, it might be number two, uh, but it's the one issue that consistently comes up uh, among with our members when we either talk to them or poll them or or both, um, and uh, which is why that we've gotten involved with this um, issue. Uh, but we're also involved in a couple of other things as well. Okay, um, Celia. No, I'm sorry, I got that stuff. Staymore in Wichita actually just sent me a link to a, uh, a HuffPost story, uh, and I'll give it, give it to everybody. The, the headline HuffPost story is that Super PACs overtaking campaign fundraising, and it was um, by Jack Gilliam this February, and I haven't got time to read it, but you can, you can get from the headlines. But then she also says, uh, Staymore also wants to know, if you do go the amendment route, how difficult is it? How long will it take? And do you think you could really be a success at it? Um, I, I think this, uh, first of all, in the past, uh, it, it is extraordinarily difficult. Um, uh, you need, a, a, I think it's three-quarters of the states to, to pass it, uh, and, and it ha- that's after it gets through Congress, uh, if it gets through Congress. So um, the way I look at this is that's a, it, it, you know, it could take as long as 10 or 15 years uh, that is a long-term uh, part of this thing, but right now we're also very focused uh, on, uh, again, Attorney General Bullock's uh, uh, challenge to uphold the Montana uh, campaign finance reform laws, uh, the possibility that New York State could pass its own election uh, program, which has already been in existence in New York, public financing in New York City for, for years. So you've got to keep working on this. Uh, don't wait for the amendment. Uh, find out what's going on in your town and your city and in your state and try to get something done there because the more you do it, the sooner we're going to get real reform in this system by amendment or otherwise. And Sally well, May, I hope, I hope and, it's by amendment, not otherwise, but go on. Uh, Sally May in New York City uh, writes, is it possible for Congress to write new campaign financing laws that will not violate the Citizens United decision but still achieve your purpose? Well, I'm not an attorney, but I would guess that it is certainly possible um, for Congress uh, to continue to limit uh, the inflow of big money into politics uh, in a way that is, A, bipartisan, in a way that is fair, um, and in a way that would not necessarily conflict with Citizens United. Would it solve the problem necessarily uh, that's been created and, and or exploded, I should say? Uh, by the Citizens United ruling. Uh, I'm not so sure that it would, uh, but they could certainly pass legislation that's going to make it difficult. And one of the things that is, uh, I think, really important here is the word disclosure. Uh, Disclosure legislation makes it, frankly, much more painful uh, and difficult for big companies or big entities uh, to be throwing a lot of money around in politics. And you don't have to take my word for this. Just ask the executive at Target uh, when they donated a whole bunch of money to PACs that were run by Michelle Bachman a couple of years ago. Uh, they, Minnesota has a disclosure law. Uh, people knew about it, and the chief executive really had a lot of explaining to do to both their customers as well as their shareholders uh, over this issue. So um, there are lots of things you can do, but I'm not sure they could pass a law that flies in the face of the uh, the ruling itself. Well, you know, Jim, every member of Congress I've ever known tells me that the Part of the job that he or she hates the most is dialing yep. the dollars, that they would do anything if they didn't have to raise money. And yet it seems like whenever legislation like this goes before Congress, they all don't vote to control campaign spending. Why is that? It's maddening 
because they are afraid of the new and they are familiar with the old. Um, and just as Connecticut Democrats actually uh, really spent a lot of time hemming and hawing over public financing, you know, they all agreed with it. They, if you ask any legislature, legislator in Connecticut, Democrat or Republican, they don't like raising money. Um, and yet they hemmed and hawed of it because there was an old business model way uh, that they were used to doing, and they didn't want to give it up for, for something that they didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Well, let me tell you what the outcome is, Patrick and Chuck. The outcome is, is that I get fundraising letters from my legislature asking for $25 now instead of you know $12,500 or $25,000. And she, in this case, asked because <clears throat> what she's trying to do is qualify uh, for the public financing, which is not about the amount of the contributions, it's about the number of contributors. And, um, and frankly, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and I think most of the legislators are very, very happy with it. Uh, Governor Malloy was actually uh, you know, in that program when he ran for office. It would prove you can win uh, against a better-funded candidate uh, in this program. It's effective. Uh, but they didn't know that when it was being passed, and that's why – and the members of Congress are in the same boat. Somebody's got to take a chance here and not worry about their next reelection and start leading this. And there are plenty of people who are capable and willing to do it, and we've just got to get them going on it. You know, I think that it's appropriate for candidates for office to have to raise money. Um, that can be regulated, and I agree with you on transparency for candidates. It already is transparent. They have to file with the Federal, Federal Elections Commission when they get a donation. I mean, as far as other groups, outside groups, I'd love to see what the Tide Foundation does, but the billionaires and millionaires are able to give money to them and, then, and do it anonymously. So that would be interesting. And uh, war on women, yeah, 90% of, the, uh, of those laid off in the past three years have been women. So, sure, Actually, there's a war a on women. statistic, and it, and it got debunked by the Secretary of Treasury this past week. And in the next hour, I can t tell you why it's wrong. Please do. I, I, I stand I, by it. I, I hate to say it, but um, <laughs> this one isn't even close. I mean, I know we got a little distracted. I, I think that uh, if, it's, if it's off, it might be off by a few points, but the no, large no, lion's share of those laid off no, 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 no. Total in the past three years have been women. No, it's not, it's not a total lie. It's the truth. We'll no. find out the exact number. Maybe they missed a point here, a point no, there. No, 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 no. no, 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 no the lion's yeah. share of those laid off have been women. And Chuck, no, look, at the, look at the legislation that's being passed in these states. Uh, Scott Walker just uh, signed a bill making it winning, much more the difficult uh, to get equal pay for, for women to get equal pay uh, no, for equal work in Wisconsin. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about, and we are falling behind other countries who do a much better job of having a productive workforce because they take care of the mothers, and, and the public and private sector make sure that mothers can be productive members of the workforce and be mothers at the same time. We're doing a lousy job of this. That is the private sector's fault right now, and it's also the fault of people like Scott Walker that are trying to make this as difficult as possible uh, for women, particularly mothers, to work and feed their families. Yeah, I think that he's winning, and I think when he does, it's going to have a very earth-shattering effect on, on the election, in my opinion. Um, I don't know, you know, you're phrasing it that way. I'd have to take a look at the, the details on that. The, the bill is, both, he, he just made it, he, he, there's an no, equal I don't pay. Doubt, I, I don't, yeah, I don't doubt that, but, I mean, the issue of equal pay for equal work, that's one of these things that uh, it should be done. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another bipartisan issue. Um, I think some people like to give lip service to that. 
hasn't been done. Certainly Obama's secretary isn't getting equal work for equal pay. I mean, this is one of Scott, these things Scott that... Scott Walker just signed a bill that makes it much more difficult to enforce this, and he did it on purpose on the behest of several companies who are his biggest supporters in order to make it more difficult to enforce. Well, you know, we'll have and, to do another show on that, um, Jim, because I, I haven't looked at that bill. and uh, Check it out. I, I, I will. I have a feeling it might be a little bit different. A lot of the things around him seem to be a little different than they're portrayed. Um, but uh, anyway, that, I applaud. That is different I, from reality than the stuff that he's saying, but I'll let you find that with, out. Well, the people of Wisconsin will find out what they think when, after the special election. That's the real, the real telling yep. point. We certainly will. Uh, Jim Dean is with Democracy for America. Again, Jim, I agree with you and applaud you for the effort of doing the right thing, which is to get a constitutional amendment put in place to support a position you like. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's what the Constitution calls for. So I say uh, onward and upward. I just wish the amendment was a little bit more balanced and less partisan, and which is why I think it probably will fail. Uh, a more balanced amendment would succeed, I would contend. Patrick? Uh, I, 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 I hope it succeeds, but I understand that the, the other strategies you're using, Jim, will, will, will probably succeed faster and uh, get us where we want. But regardless of this, if we don't get the money out of politics in, the, in, in this country, I think we're going to see the end of, of what we call democracy. Uh, that yeah. We are rapidly becoming a plutocracy. Yeah, and people are starting to tune out, and that's the really bad part. Um, the voters have got to take control over this, and we've got to make it possible for them that to happen, and that's part of the campaign finance reform stuff that, uh, that we're trying to do. Well, you, you, you keep it up, okay? Well, and thank I you, Patrick, right. and thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Jim Dean is with Democracy for America. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Patrick, I think we're going to go to a break. We are going to go to a break, and we're going to put where, as our, um, uh, as we've been doing, as, as our as our custom now, we are playing music uh, from the, uh, the the music segment that we're going to have on Friday. Uh, we're playing music from uh, Walter Strauss, who will be with us 2:30 Friday. And he's just returned from Mali. He got out a couple of days before the uh, the government there collapsed, and uh, he brought with him quite a bit of Malinese music. So I'm going to play uh, Sudoku, and here it comes. All right.
Duncan Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. Patrick, uh, we are back for Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, could you please talk a bit on our guest coming up this hour? Uh, yes, uh, I will talk a bit about our guest coming up this hour. Uh, and, and, of course, we are in, in Hour 2, and Hour 2 is being brought to you by our our sponsor, that would be Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. And let me talk about them for just a second. If you go to www.bartonpublishing.com, you will find out why they are the one place that you can go for information to manage your body and your health without resorting to toxic drugs or expensive drugs. They provide information, not cures and not pills. They provide information that you can use for whatever ails you, for arthritis, for acid reflux, for uh, you name it, it's there. And, and when you go to their site and you see something you, you, you would like to get information on and you put it in your shopping cart, there up pops a little window, and that window says coupon code and put in fairness and you get a 50% discount. 50% discount just by using the coupon code FAIRNESS. So that's www.bartonpublishing.com. And that's your source of information, how to manage your health without resorting to expensive or toxic drugs. If, uh, coming up, we have a, um, a, uh, an entertainment and insurance lawyer, a man who has spent um, a, a lifetime dealing with questions of uh, medical insurance, among, among many others, and uh, he's, over the years, he's put together a program to reduce the cost of health care. And he's done it, well, I will let, I don't want to step on his toes or, or, or do the interview, but his uh, name is David Ruglick, and uh, he will be with us in um, about 10 minutes or so, and he can tell us a way to reduce the cost of health care, which, of course, is very important these days as we're beginning to look at um, Medicare and Obamacare and things like that. So that's what I can tell you about this. Oh, okay. Well, okay. we'll see how it goes. Okay. Um, it, it would be great to uh, find out how, I mean, certainly personally, to save money on health care. Um, well, talking about the whole health care system in the United States. Oh, okay. I mean, uh, I have a, sorry, I just don't know anything about it. We'll see. Okay. Um, going back, Patrick, to the business of the so-called war on the middle class, um, your contention being that the Birch Society is colluding with some global corporation of which you've named one, claiming that they're conservative because they're interested in profits, uh, that being a Walmart, which, by the way, I don't even think is necessarily all that global. I think it's more American. Are you kidding? American. Are you kidding? Well, <laughs> well, fine, they're global. I mean, oh, somehow on. they – the it, it, it is the largest manufacturer in China – it is the largest exporter from China to the rest of the world. It has over uh, 2,000 stores outside of the United States. You don't call that global? Thank you. Thanks okay. for clarifying. Your All claim right. being that somehow they're conservative because there's a drumbeat from far-left groups that are against them? I don't think so. Um, and I think that uh, as far as, as big corporations making profits – that's not a conservative or liberal thing, as you even said during our interview with Jim Dean, um, and that generally speaking, I would contend, and uh, the, I don't know if I, I don't have that much data on it, but uh, that the, big, the smaller the corporation, the more likely it would be to have conservatives as, as people who are running it, and that the bigger ones tend to not be conservatives. 
Uh, the, free tra- the free trade agenda is not conservative. Um, it's uh, it's just big corporations working with big international uh, groups who who, who view uh, borders as an anachronism. There's nothing conservative about it. Um, it's uh, it generally has co-opted portions of the Republican Party, but traditionally it's been a Democratic Party cause going all the way back to the days of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so Republican. That's right, and they were, and he was against it. He had Lincoln implemented the Morrell tariff, two Morrell tariffs. So Lincoln was opposed to internationalism, but uh, the. Well, let, let me let me respond to that. Um, as I as I've said many times, uh, I think we've reached a point in in uh, our nation's evolution in which one of the the four major players in the economy, that would be the corporations, are. Neither Republican nor Democratic. They're neither conservative uh, nor liberal. They are profit-driven, and they they establish whatever policies, uh, or they support whatever policies will allow them to increase their profits. This has been a, a something relatively new in the past 20, 25 years, and that's because of the globalization. And glo- globalization was driven mostly by technology. It wasn't driven by policy. Uh, although the, uh, the the free trade treaties, which I have to admit the Democrats were uh, were in there supporting just like everybody else, particularly uh, Mr. Clinton, uh, accelerated them. But I don't say that. But when you say corporations are liberal conservatives, we we have to determine what it is we're talking about. And I actually say they're neither one. They're profit driven. Some well, corporate then, Patrick, executives why, are why liberal then? in their social views. Some corporate executives right. are liberal are conservative in their social views. But when it comes to the PACs they support. The associations like the Chamber of Commerce and the, and the Council for Growth and other things like that, they're neither liberal nor conservative. All they want to do is reduce their taxes and shove their costs off onto the public, and they don't really care who's in office as long as they can get what they want. And they really don't care about social issues as long as they can get what they want. In fact, I'm fairly certain that behind the scenes you're seeing some money being poured into the the campaigns to support access to contraception, and that money's coming from the drug companies that make it. So, sure. so they're neither liberal nor conservative. They're profit-driven. They'll support whoever allows them to, to reduce their taxes and to externalize their costs onto the public. All right. Well, taking what you've said and putting aside my thesis that the biggest corporations, the global corporations, oh, we, we have to welcome in our, our radio listeners. Okay. Thanks. Uh, why don't you just well, go ahead and do that? Welcome aboard, radio listeners. WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida. KSKQ. FM in Ashland, Oregon. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, uh, carried by our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Networks, and our online partner, Blog Talk Radio, Chuck Warson, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. We're talking about, Patrick, your, the business of the so-called Republican Party's war on the middle class, which was how we started this conversation. Uh, based upon what you just said, which is that your contention being that this war is a collusion between the John Birch Society and, and, as you said, global corporations. And yet what you're saying now, putting aside my thesis, which is that the uh, global corporations tend to be liberal um, and generally are apolitical, you're right, they tend to support the, those who are going to help their bottom line, which is not necessarily which is not a conservative issue. They want to do business in other countries internationally. Putting that aside, uh, how is it then a war by the Republican Party? I mean, what you're describing is a globalist corporate 
trend that doesn't particularly pay attention to uh, Republican or Democratic parties. They tend to pay, you know, they tend to just uh, get involved with what what works for them in any given year. Uh, well, actually, the, I, I think you've you've expressed it very well. Uh, a globalist co- corporate trend, and the yeah. corporations themselves, as I as we both uh, agreed, support whoever will give them what they want in terms of legislation. However, standing next to or behind or sometimes in front of the corporations are a whole range of lobbying organizations, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the, the Business Roundtable, the Steelmakers Association, the Association of, of uh, Warehouses, the associ- uh, et cetera. Uh, these organizations are somewhat, uh, not somewhat, but largely support Republicans, and we can, you know, I can go through a PolitiFact and, and mm-hmm. lay out the, the list of that. They largely support Republicans because they're looking for something else, and what they're looking for is reduce taxes, and in order to reduce taxes, they want to cut government, and when, they, when you look at the list of what they want to be cutting, they want to cut things that the middle class uses, not things that corporations use. They don't want to cut corporate welfare. They want to cut people welfare. They don't want to cut infrastructure that helps corporations. They want infrastructure that helps the middle class, like universities. And, so, and, and, and again, it's not a liberal or conservative thing. They want to cut those things that don't help them so they can, pay, so they can extract tax monies for those things that do help them. As long as they can keep getting their subsidies, uh, their water subsidies, that's fine. But if it means they have to cut junior colleges in California, then fine, cut junior colleges in California. And it, it's the typical, it's the classic political uh, situation in which politics is actually a fight over resources. In this case, the resources are the taxpayers' money. And the middle class, um, generally supported by unions, but now by a lot of other organizations, want to keep things like Pell Grants that help them, and the corporations want to keep things like water subsidies to help them. There's not enough money to go around. And so they, the large corporate lobbying organizations uh, fight to reduce things that the middle class wants so they can keep more things the corporations want. And it's a fight over resources. It's not really conservative or liberal. Unfortunately, it's, kind of, it's gotten put in those camps. Well, that's why I'm saying, Patrick, this is not the Republican Party. Um, the uh, keeping things like farm subsidies, for example, or some of the other what you call accurately called corporate welfare, where the federal government actually gives money to various groups, that's something that tends to be more regional. It tends to be more depending upon where you live and where you are and the political power that these groups have. And these groups are both liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican. So I don't think that – and the issue of whether or not to cut the size of government, I think that's something that both sides agree has to be done. Nobody likes it. But when you have an administration that has increased the debt by $5 trillion and that is dealing with a deficit that is $1.5 trillion and that spent more in three years than Bush, who was also a big spender, spent in eight, then you have a situation where both sides are saying that if we don't do something about this debt, or the deficit, then the entire economy is going to go down the drain. I don't think that's – and I don't think, by the way, that that's even a partisan issue. I think that people who are in the inside who understand the the, the ramifications, regardless of how popular or unpopular it may be, and it's not popular, they understand this. And I've seen people on both sides, testimony from people on both sides – who have said that this is a major problem. So I don't think, again, that even that 
is or shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be an issue that is dealing with certain realities. It, and it all depends on how you want to solve it. And uh, we right. need to take a break, and we've got a guest on the line. So why don't we take a quick break here and then uh, come back, and we can talk about health care costs. Sure. on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyberstation USA Network, and our radio affiliates around the country. This segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on how to manage your health and your body without resorting to dangerous or expensive drugs. And don't forget, when you go to Barton Publishing, the coupon code is FAIRNESS. If you put FAIRNESS in the coupon code box, you get a 50% discount. So that's Barton Publishing, your source of information, www.bartonpublishing.com. We're back, Chuck. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest this segment is David Rudick. He's a Los Angeles-based attorney specializing in intellectual property, entertainment, and insurance-related matters. He's worked with clients in the entertainment industry, including musicians, actors, producers, and directors. And he is the founder of Confidential Life Insurance, a highly successful venture involving Lloyds of London that provides the entertainment industry with a confidential means of insuring talent. Uh, David, thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. David, you, you have information on a question that is important and that is fascinating to both myself and my co-host, and that is why is it that health care is so expensive? Why is the price inflated? And if so, why is it inflated? Well, I don't know that I can give you an answer in that regard, but what I can do is make a, a few observations about it and then make a suggestion that I think both of you uh, might be comfortable with. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, conservatives, liberals, might be comfortable with that might substantially reduce the cost of health care in this country. Uh, in regard to the question of why is it so expensive, uh, we spend approximately three times as much money in this country on health care per capita as any other country, in major industrialized country in the world. Uh, when I was born, not quite 70 years ago, uh, we had about the longest life expectancy of any country in the world. We had uh, the lowest infant mortality rate. We grew taller than the people of virtually any other country in the world because of the fact that we had uh, better nutrition. Today, we, uh, uh, according to Wikipedia, we're number 36th in the world uh, in terms of life expectancy behind Cuba, South Korea, Macau, Malta, uh, 
and, and many other uh, countries, uh, and and um, that's alarming. Our infant mortality rate is number 34 in the world, uh, behind uh, Cuba, Macau, etc. That that is uh, not satisfactory. Um, we're not doing things right, and uh, we need to think outside of the box. So I have a suggestion. We have uh, in California. We enacted a law that, or a statutory scheme that hasn't worked uh, called MICRA. Uh, MICRA is the Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act of 1975 to limit uh, non-economic, non-economic damages that one might recover uh, for a medical malpractice case. And we did other things, limiting the attorney's fees, uh, spreading out the payments, uh, over time to uh, someone who's injured as a consequence of medical malpractice, hoping to bring down the incidence of medical malpractice cases and reduce uh, uh, the cost of medical malpractice insurance uh, and thus reduce medical, medical costs. That hasn't worked, and it's had horrible consequences for people that have been injured. What I propose uh, will not gore anyone ox or, or virtually anyone's ox and and should be acceptable acceptable to all what i suggest is that congress enact a statutory scheme or that we do it on a state by state basis whereby we set up medical panels these panels would take a look at the current uh, uh state of, of of medicine and determine standards or, or criteria by which they would recommend when medical tests and medical procedures be performed. These would not be mandatory, so that they would establish uh, a certain level of uh, 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 or criteria by which a doctor would decide above which he should have uh, perform uh, a test for prostate cancer. Uh, maybe it's the age of the patient. Uh, uh, above a certain level of uh, blood pressure, the doctor might decide that uh, some medication be uh, prescribed or some test be performed. Uh, and in other ways, if a patient presented with, uh, with uh, headaches uh, beyond a certain number of days, above a certain threshold level of pain, an MRI might be performed or some other test be performed. Now, the... What I propose is that the doctor could do it above or below those threshold uh, levels. But if the doctor does it, d- decides not to perform a test when the patient has not presented with a, a uh, symptoms or conditions that that would the panel would recommend that the test be performed or a procedure be performed, then the doctor would be insulated from from uh, professional liability for not performing the test. You see, we have a situation now where a patient comes to a doctor's office, and if the patient has any symptoms whatsoever and the doctor doesn't perform a test or a procedure, it may be that one out of 100,000 or one out of 200,000 patients or some small percentage would have a condition anyway, even though there is no reasonable basis or reason for the doctor to perform a test. But the doctor doesn't want to be sued for, for professional liability, whether in California or elsewhere. 
uh, and the doctor performs a test as a prophylactic measure to protect himself or herself from liability. Sure. And to find those those rare cases where there there might be a hidden problem. But if we have a situation where we have a statutory scheme, either federal or on a state-by-state -state basis, where if the, the, we do not have symptoms that are present that would warrant and make it economically reasonable to perform a test, the doctor not performing the test would be insulated from professional liability. That would save us hundreds of billions of dollars a year in unnecessary medical tests or un medical tests and procedures that are not recommended and in some cases are harmful. And, and the doctor could still perform the test if he or she wants to. If he or she feels, well, there's something unusual here, I think I better perform the test anyway, he could or she could. And uh, so we're not interfering with his or her medical practice at all, and yet we are protecting the medical profession so that the, the main impetus for, for having all of these unnecessary and overly prescribed tests and procedures would be eliminated. And that would cut way down on uh, the cost of medical care. Uh, it would save the federal government billions, if not tens or hundreds of billions of dollars uh, for Medicare and Medicaid, and, uh, and uh, I, I think could not be objected to, uh, by, legitimately objected to by anyone. Well, David, I think that you're addressing a part of the problem, and that is this uh, fear on the part of doctors to be... Um, sued if they don't do every last thing, um, mainly because of um, a growth in, uh, in trial lawyers suing for such matters. Um, and, um, you know, the, I'm not sure that the way to address that is to set up state councils, but um, there's the other flip side of the coin also, which is that hospitals and uh, doctors' offices, they want to do more tests because they make money from it. They, they've invested in money in these new pieces of equipment, you know, they have this new prostate piece of equipment. Sure, sure, they want to do tests so they, because these pieces of equipment cost millions of dollars in some cases. I mean, I can speak to this. About a year ago, I, I went to the hospital because I had I fainted. It's a situation I've, I've always had. It comes maybe every 10 years. but um, And it's not a problem. But the problem is that while I was there, they wanted to do all these tests, which I knew I didn't need or want, and I said no to all of it. And they were really upset that I said no, but I said, no, I'm leaving. I'm not doing any of this. But the fact is they wanted to do those tests because they make money from it. I mean, they can then bill uh, what my insurance company. They, in, in, in the case of retired people, they can bill Medicare. In the case of indigent people, they can bill Medicaid. And, and that it's a moneymaker. So well, there's an I, answer I tend to, to that. Agree. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact is that I think that what I proposed initially, uh, as I just spoke, would reduce very significantly the unnecessary number of tests because most medical practitioners uh, care about the welfare of their patients and the well-being of their patients and are not trying to increase their incomes uh, uh, um, artificially. Uh, but right. there are some uh, that, that are. And a second aspect of this that could be effected would be to insulate insurance carriers from liability if they refuse to pay for procedures that are um, conducted when the, uh, we have not met or the, the circumstances uh, do not present the, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, criteria whereby the panel warrants 
uh, whereby the panel recommends that a procedure be conducted. Now, we would need to be very careful with that so that we have, uh, if there are any extraneous or, or unusual circumstances, the doctor would be able to uh, uh, recommend the procedure anyway. But we could um, cut way down on the situation that you're talking about by having the uh, uh, in, uh, insurance companies insulated from liability if they don't pay for those extra procedures. And uh, that would cut way back. The patient would then have to be told that, uh, listen, uh, sir or madam, you are going to have to pay for all of this yourself mm -hmm. because uh, it is a, a procedure or a test that is going to be performed that is uh, below the threshold of uh, recommended or, or the threshold level that has been set by the, the panel that has been empowered to do that, and your insurance carrier is not going to pay for it. And that would cut way back as well. Yeah, but on the other hand, that could give insurance companies an out to pay for things that they should pay for. We know, for example, the last year there was a recommendation on the part of some federal agency, I don't remember which, Patrick, you might be able to uh, enlighten, that recommended that women under the age of between uh, 40 and 50 should not be getting coverage for uh, mammograms because uh, and, and pap smears. Now, that's something that a, a, a panel of experts came up with, and I think that's wrong. I mean, it's a, you know, in other words, it, it could ultimately prove to be a way to ration health care. And uh, we, the panels that you talk about also bring up concern in my mind because it sounds to me like what is being put in place possibly on the national level as part of Obamacare, which is a panel that's going to set standards and going to give every single American citizen, a male and female, a quarry number, which is to say a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not they should get certain procedures because of various factors such as their age or general health. And that's also rationing. So I think that really the answer to the, the dilemma of reducing these unnecessary tests has more to do with a general effort to educate the public, to advocate for themselves, to be able to shop around, to be able to get second and third opinions, to be able to say no to suggestions of tests uh, on their own, because they know that there's going to be perhaps a visible consequence if they do unnecessary tests, because they might have a private insurance account that in which the money is taken out and whatnot, and also because the states get rid of some of these mandated insurance riders, uh, in which case they'd have to buy the rider themselves, and that would reduce the cost of premiums. Well, first of all, um, what I proposed is neither um, Republican nor Democrat, uh, neither conservative nor liberal in, in its orientation. You refer to Obamacare, which, of course, is an emotionally laden term, uh, Congress passed the uh, the federal act, and and uh, President Obama signed it. Um, but uh, that's an emotionally laden term uh, that I don't particularly care for. Uh, in terms of what the first proposal that I made uh, would also educate the public, because the uh, and and the second one could, uh, the panel would of course publish its uh, recommendations, and uh, then. The public could take a look at them and would be exposed to them and and could determine whether they want to proceed with the procedure as well. The, mm -hmm. the first aspect of what I proposed could not ration health care at all. 
uh, and would merely uh, insulate doctors if they chose not to uh, uh, perform a test or a procedure, and they were sued, sued for it later. And that has no ability whatsoever to affect a rationing of health care. In terms of uh, insulating the, um, the insurance carriers, if they do not uh, pay for a procedure, that is something that I'm worried about, concerned about, but could be used if we found that the first step was not sufficient to cut back on, on uh, unnecessary tests. I think that it would be, because I think that the vast preponderance of doctors and other health care providers care about their patients and are, uh, want what's best for them and are not in the business of medicine simply to make money, but are trying to do the right thing. And this would cut way back on the costs of unnecessary tests and procedures. Uh, the second aspect that I suggested might be considered would have to be considered very carefully and limited uh, significantly because otherwise it could wind up in rationing. And I don't want that, and you don't want that. But the first aspect of what I proposed uh, I think would save tens to hundreds of billions of dollars and not uh, uh, result and could not result in any rationing whatsoever. It might okay. not go far enough, but it could do a lot. Well, let me, for, before I introduce my co-host, I just want to comment that um, the national council that's put forth by Obamacare is mandatory if it is implemented, and that it does, I would argue, ration by deciding who gets what treatment and who doesn't based upon their quarry scores. The uh, panels that you're suggesting are state panels that would be voluntary. My concern is that eventually, step by step, incrementally, they could be turned into mandatory panels just like the national panel, in which case they would be involved in rationing. And I think that the way to reduce uh, unnecessary costs by insurance companies uh, would be uh, for there to be tort reform, for there to be um, malpractice reform, which would leave in place the ability of someone to sue if they are genuinely harmed. That's a legislative matter that could be handled on the state level. Uh, let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you, Chuck, and uh, thank you, David, for spending time with us. Uh, we have a whole bunch of emails. Our, our listeners have, have a lot of questions for you, but I, I have a couple of questions. Um, the first one is there's been a lot of debate over the, the role of, um, of litigation against doctors, malpractice uh, lawsuits against doctors. How big of a deal is it in terms of the overall cost of health care? Well, the let me go back uh, and respond to Chuck for just a moment to yes. say that uh, he seems addicted to using the term Obamacare, which is an emotionally uh, uh, laden term, and, and I think distorts the picture. Uh, and uh, secondly, I want to say that I was not suggesting state panels. It, uh, I think it would be best with a federal panel, in mm. fact. Uh, either way, uh, if, if the panel merely made recommendations uh, or set criteria, and uh, below that level of criteria, if a person uh, presented or patient presented with uh, a condition which would, uh, the panel would not recommend uh, a test or a procedure, the doctor would be insulated from liability. That could not uh, result in the rationing of health care. And the fact that somebody might take some other step or propose some other step at some other time that, uh, that might in an additional step result in health care should not be uh, a, a prospect that would cause us to, to
to avoid what I'm suggesting or to reject what I'm suggesting, we should reject some other step, some rationing at some other time if we, if it's in a, inappropriate or, or undesirable. But what I suggest is not go where anybody's ox whatsoever and would cut way back on the, the, the issue of uh, uh, or the, the cost of medical care. Uh, Patrick, I'm sorry, uh, I strayed from your question a little bit. Okay. I'm not quite sure I answered it. Well, I was asking you, um, how, how big of a deal is um, uh, malpractice, yes. uh, the cost of malpractice insurance in the overall cost of, uh, of, of our medical delivery in this, in this country? Is it 1%? Is it 50%? I mean, if we eliminated malpractice insurance, how much would that lower, or mal- eliminated malpractice, how much would that lower the overall cost of medical care? I don't know what the um, cost of a medical malpractice coverage is for a doctor in each state, uh, and and I don't have a, a I don't know what the average doctor's income is, gross income, so I can't tell you what percentage of the doctor's income uh, or, or expenses. Uh, uh, medical uh, malpractice coverage or professional liability coverage is. I can tell you that tort reform, in the in as uh, enacted in California, is a hideous failure and uh, is terribly, terribly burdensome on the average individual. Uh, I don't do medical malpractice. Uh, uh, um, I don't practice medical malpractice. Yeah. Uh, law, but I and and very few lawyers do anymore, because they have been put out of business by California's tort reform. Uh, in California, if someone goes to a doctor, or if your wife went to a doctor or your child and was killed uh, or paralyzed from the neck down, the total amount that you could recover for that would be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for non-economic damages. You could then also recover one's lost earnings uh, that one would have had discounted to present value. Uh, um, But that's it. Uh, If you lost your eyesight, if you lost an arm or a leg, uh, or were paralyzed from the waist down, it would be considerably below $250,000. That that Uh, seems like not very much. It isn't very much. And furthermore, what they have done is to say that that money would not be paid out in front. It would be paid over the period of your lifetime. And the lawyer who handle, handles the case would be limited in terms of his fee to 40% of the first $50,000 of the recovery, or $20,000, one-third of the second $50,000, or $16,666, and, tw- and then 25% of the next $500,000, or $125,000, and everything over $600,000 would be 15%. These fees would be paid only over time as the money is paid. And the consequence is that the lawyer's fees have been reduced so substantially and the amount of money that can be recovered is reduced so substantially that lawyers don't want to handle these claims, and it's very, very difficult to get uh, a lawyer to handle any such claim. I had a, a people called me. Well, uh, well, well Dave, Dave um, this brings me to a, an email we've gotten from one of our listeners in Miami uh, to you, who, who asks, if doctors make honest mistakes, why should we sue them? The body is very complex, and they can't always get it right. But if they try, they shouldn't be liable. What do you think of that? I agree. The fact of the matter is, if a doctor makes an honest mistake, he uh, but he has practiced reasonably, 
and within the standards and up to the standards of medical practice in his community, he shouldn't be liable. And he isn't under the laws of uh, virtually every state. I don't know the laws of all 50 states. Louisiana follows the Napoleonic Code, and I'm not an expert in it. But the fact is that a doctor is liable or a lawyer is liable or another professional if they practice in a fashion that is below the standard of care in their community for their profession. Okay. And, and that is the issue, and occasionally it occurs. Uh, but the, what I'm proposing is simply to eliminate the incentive for a doctor to conduct a test or a, or a procedure uh, as a prophylactic measure to protect himself or herself uh, from being sued. And this would protect the doctor or, or uh, from, from liability if the procedure or, or the test is, is not recommended by a panel. He could still do it. Seems reasonable uh, to me, um, uh, Chuck. Well, we need to take our um, our station identification break. You want to come back and let me answer, sure. ask some more questions after this? Okay. Uh, okay. We're going to we're going to take our station identification break right now, and uh, when we come back, we will uh, continue this conversation. So stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, our guest is David Rudick, Los Angeles attorney specializing in health care costs. Um, David, you have a uh, proposal that would essentially set up some oversight, you say voluntary on the state level, to determine whether or not various procedures are appropriate for a patient. Um, and uh, Patrick, please continue. Sure. And, and actually, we have some more emails on, on that. Um, and this is from Carlos Ramirez in Los Angeles. And Carlos wants to know, wouldn't it be simpler to reduce fees to doctor by getting rid of fees for service? Then we wouldn't have to set up any panels. We would just pay doctors less because they would be responsible for keeping us healthy rather than uh, giving us all the tests you're talking about. Well, it seems to me that's never going to happen. We're never going to get uh, the medical community, the, uh, uh, the uh, Congress, to pass such a law. Uh, that would sound more like uh, something that uh, Chuck would sneer at as uh, European socialism or something like that. What yeah. I'm, sugge what I'm <laughs> suggesting would not 
Gore, anyone's legitimate ox, if you will. And once again, Chuck, I'm suggesting that it would probably be better to do it on a federal level, but it can be done on a state level. Either way, it would save us tens to hundreds of billions of dollars. And the fact of the matter is that tort reform has not worked. It costs as much or more in California to go to a doctor. Medical care costs as much or more than in any other state. And we enacted this draconian tort reform. I had uh, some people that that came to me. They had a son who was a a farm worker. Uh, He made very little money. He had a boil on his back. He went to a doctor. The doctor lanced the boil and did not give him any form of antibiotics. Uh, And the consequence was he had an infection. He went back to the doctor. The doctor didn't treat it, and he wound up with the infection invading his spine, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. I couldn't find a lawyer to represent him. I couldn't find a single lawyer, and I called many, because he wasn't making much money. And so the the lawyers did not want to make a small percentage of $250,000 and a small percentage of the lost earnings, uh, and he was paralyzed, and I couldn't find anyone to represent him. And yet medical care in this state is as costly as in any other state in the union. Tort reform simply does not work. It sounds good, it doesn't work, and it, it harms people. What I'm suggesting would not harm anyone except perhaps an occasional uh, 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 unscrupulous person who wants to run tests that are unnecessary because he's got a new machine or a new laboratory. And those are not common. Uh, the medical profession is full of honorable people. But, but the fact is that at least most of them would stop running unnecessary tests that they are running simply to insulate themselves from liability. There's no harm to what I suggest, and it could result in savings of many, many tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, and cut back on the costs of medical care uh, in this country. It's a step. There are others that can be taken, but this is a step that no one really should oppose. Well, we have a uh, uh, an email here from Larry Stern in Atlanta, and Atlanta, and he says your guest says nobody's ox will be gored, but if there's less tests being conducted, the testing companies are actually going to lose money. Aren't they going to fight this? They're not the ones who um, who cause the tests to be performed. It's the doctors who do. It's the medical care providers that do. They're the ones who make the decision. And they're the ones who would be protected if they don't run unnecessary or inadvisable tests. And uh, so, so you know, there may be a small chorus of people that are running laboratories or, or, or that, that might see their income decrease, but those are for unnecessary tests, and they could not legitimately oppose this. Okay. I think Ch- it would sail through Congress, and I would pass it federally. And I think it would sail through Congress if anyone happens to be listening is in a position to propose it. Well, that's what we're doing here. Chuck, we have about a minute left. Uh, you want to wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, look, here's the thing. I, you know, I am distrustful of government, especially in light of the uh, federal councils that are going to issue Cori scores to every American based upon their age and health, that, the, that then the government will mandate who gets what health care, and they'll penalize doctors who don't provide various health care. 
But I think there's a private sector solution to the legitimate problems that you bring up, David, and that would be for the doctors themselves or uh, other medical associations to issue their own standards to their members, to put something behind those standards in terms of um, agreeing to back up doctors who might be sued and, and who do it from a strictly medical standpoint. Um, in the sa and it could operate in the same way that a lot of other private associations operate. I know it's an imperfect analysis, but I think of the music business, ASCAP and BMI, and how they represent musicians, uh, you know, from things like lawsuits and also they collect royalties. So I would prefer there be a private sector solution to it um, and not create government um, panels that could eventually become, uh, get mandatory powers. And there are certainly people, as we know, in government who want that. Um, and more, uh, and then uh, and then would be setting up quarry scores. But uh, David Rudick, I want to thank you for joining us. Is there a website that you would like people to look at? Uh, no, I don't have a website, uh, or, or not one that that uh, is significant to the public. Uh, l let me simply respond, Chuck, by saying, if I sure. may, that uh, if you've ever been involved in litigation, you know that you spend weeks with a lawyer and in depositions and in hearings and in trial. And doctors are not paid for that. So that whether or not they would be protected or backed up uh, in a private sector solution, they will continue to prescribe unnecessary tests and procedures if there is a chance that they can be sued because they would loathe spending weeks and weeks or months meeting with lawyers and in depositions and in trial where they are not paid, uh, that is not a satisfactory solution. What I propose would insulate them all from liability, and uh, they would welcome it. And uh, it, it uh, if watched carefully, could not be expanded to become a problem. It is a solution. The fact that it's a governmental solution should not be an issue. We have many governmental solutions to problems that work beautifully. All right, David, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Have a nice evening, or a nice day. All the best. Thanks, Thanks so for much. having me. Thank Bye -bye. you, David. All right, you we'll, bet. We'll take a, a, a quick break, and then uh, we'll be back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Strauss, 
And uh, he will be with us on our music segment at 2.30 on Friday. Walter Strauss, he's brought a lot of music back from uh, from Molly and, of course, his own music. So tune in 2.30 Friday for Music Friday, and, uh, <clears throat> and you'll hear Walter Strauss and the wonderful music of Molly. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Patrick. Interesting interview. You know, it's a subject that we both are learning about, we both care about. Um, yeah. And it's, it's complicated. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you want to have uh, reform put in place that would prevent frivolous lawsuits. On the other hand, if someone is uh, damaged, you want to make sure they get damages. You know, it's a, it's complicated. Yeah, it, it very much is. And uh, I think David, I, I like the track that David's uh, uh, on. Um, and I, I could see it being done on a, on a statewide level, on a state-by-state state level, probably easier and faster than on a federal level. Uh, what do you think? Well, Patrick, look, I, 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 the reason you like the track he's on is why I don't like it. It's not the, it's not the track itself, which would be to have an advisory panel to uh, protect doctors from lawsuits by making recommendations. It's the possibility that those those uh, advisory panels could become quasi-governmental and even uh, governmental in terms of having mandatory power, which is exactly what the National Council would have. That I don't like. So I think that the the uh, the way to go about it, and and I'm not you know I'm only touching on it. I don't I'm not an expert, but it seems to me to be would be a private association of doctors that would have a good deal of um, you know that could put out standards on various medical problems and offer to protect doctors in, in that regard and to do so based solely on medical considerations, none other and would be completely voluntary. Ultimately, the doctor-patient relationship should be private, and it's, and it's up to the doctor because the doctor is looking at the patient, and every single person is different. But that yet, you know, it would take off some of the pressure with regard to doctors having to do things that really they know they don't want to do because they're afraid of being sued, which is a big problem. Well, I think we should look at all all the, the various possibilities there, and and I think the most important thing that David has uh, highlighted is the, the the cost of unnecessary diagnostic services that are done for legal reasons. Right, and which we all it, agree is a problem. I mean, yeah. that's that's not controversial. The question is, how do you deal with it in a way that doesn't result in some bureaucrat saying you can't do something, or that you'll be penalized if you do, which is what's possibly going to happen on the federal level. Now, as far as uh, Jimmy Dean goes, I mean, I just have a quick thought on that, too, Jim Patrick, Dean. if you don't mind. Jimmy Dean makes sausage. Jim Dean makes <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just being a little a little snide here. Um, you know, the uh, the idea of having a constitutional amendment to to limit and even eliminate money um, from from politics, at least in terms of uh, setting up donation, you know, big, big donors or big, or big organizations, you know, I mean, I in general, I would be in favor of it, but their their proposal is so flawed and it's so partisan. It, it basically leaves in place the big donors for the Democratic Party, and it only goes after what they think are the big donors for the Republican Party, but in fact are big donors for both sides. And that's just not fair, and that's why it's not going anywhere. It's just, uh, you know, if they're going to get rid of the big donations, they have to get rid of the union donations too. And as you so accurately illustrated, of the top ten do big donors uh, to political campaigns, at least half of them are unions. 
and that they're overwhelmingly donating to Democratic Party candidates and causes. So, uh, well, if, we have to be clear. Of, of the top ten uh, uh, major donors in the country um, between 1989 and 2011, you are correct. Uh, right. uh, seven were, were unions and three were corporations, but those were donors to campaigns. Of the top ten uh, uh, PACs and super PACs, that's much different. And those donors donated only to campaigns, not to PACs or super PACs. Republican PACs are outspending Democratic PACs by about 10 to 1. Well, but the super PACs aren't even addressed in in, um, in Bernie Sanders' uh, legislation. Right, and I would also argue, Patrick, that the unions all have their own PACs. As you but know, they're, they're minuscule compared to the corporate. No, PACs. they're not. Yeah, they are. some of them. Are, some of them are quite large, and they're all. They're, there are PACs and super PACs on on all sides. It's not just corporations. It's unions. It's nonprofit groups. I mean, Acorn had a PAC. They set it up in 1971, you know, or 1981. Excuse me. I mean, this is something that and, and Governor Deval Patrick here in Massachusetts just set up a PAC. That's largely funded by insurance companies, by the way. I mean, doing business in the state. So, but that's I look, candidate I, pack. That's different. I oh, mean, I get, see. Uh, so, well, well, what's the different union pack? But um, well, I'm saying that there are packs set up by all in various forms by various interest groups and candidates and people and special interests, and they're all over the place. And 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 my contention is that, you know, the last time there was a big campaign finance reform put in place, and this was, I believe, in the 1980s, the result was that you saw the emergence of these so-called soft money groups because they could no longer do hard money. So money found its place. And to set up a a constitutional amendment that is so skewed to try to go after just one segment of where money goes and to not even mention the other segment, it's obviously unfair and unbalanced. Well, to you. And it all – excuse me? Uh, to you it is, not to me. Oh, I see. So you think it is fair to leave in place special interests that support the Democratic Party uh, and I, only unions, go after I, Unions, definitely, because unions represent real-life pe- uh, working people. Corporations don't. They just represent profits. Yeah, in other words, yes, you think it's fair to leave in place the special interests that are overwhelmingly supporting the Democratic Party. And the Look, people. Patrick, either you can, fine, you can, you can call them anything you want. The fact is that they are of the top ten donors, they're, not, they're seven, and that they, they support the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates by, I think it's an average of 80 to 90 percent. It's just not fair. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals whether they be in a union or not, or whether they be uh, in any configuration, shouldn't be able to support whoever they want. But if you're going to take the big money out of politics and get it, you know, that's supporting various partisan candidates and causes, then you have to do it balanced-wise, or else it's just not going to go anywhere. Well, let's, well you know, maybe what we're saying here is that the, the, the problem is not the, is the money – being donated, it, the problem is money being spent. And if we put a cap on how much people could spend in campaigns, or how much people could accept in campaigns, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be, it wouldn't matter. Uh, nobody could donate, or very little could be donated. And that's what the McCain finance law tried to do. And of course, that was what was overturned in Citizens United. Right. But we just did what the English do. You, you, this is how much money you can spend. The campaign can only run for three months. Period. And then if you want to raise money up to that limit, that's fine. And actually, Arizona tried to do that, and they were also uh, overruled by the Supreme Court, too. It just seems like this And rightfully. 
Look, well, Patrick, and I, I think disagree. that Jimmy Dean is going about it in the right way when he calls for a constitutional amendment because it is a free speech issue. And the best way to handle it is to have a constitutional amendment that makes a, an across-the-board statement with regard to how much money can go to campaigns and good. other groups. That'd be Fine. Yeah. But the problem is that uh, his particular or Bernie Sanders' particular amendment it's very partisan. It only goes after those whom they perceive to be supporting groups that they don't agree with, and it says nothing about groups that they do. Well, All I'm suggesting here is that if there's going to be an amendment to the Constitution, and this would be in conformity with all the other amendments, it should apply across the board equally to money going into either campaigns or outside organizations and limiting that money. And that's perfectly fair, not giving a pass to any other, any group, regardless of the reason. Well, then That's you should just get your senator fair. to introduce uh, your version of that, and uh, Bernie Sanders will introduce his version of that. And we'll see what what Bernie is well, uh, that, what Bernie is 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 doing is uh, is is amending the Constitution so that organizations which work for the benefit of large numbers of people can have their voice, but organizations that that work for the for, just for profit don't have it. Then there's a difference. He's saying that people that corporations aren't prop, aren't aren't people. Unions, however, are made up of people, and it's a different view. And and so maybe you should get uh, Scott Brown to uh, to organize uh, a, a an amendment that uh, fits your criteria, and we'll see dueling amendments in the Senate. Well, Patrick, I'm talking about this particular amendment here, and yeah, I'm I simply pointing out that it it favors one group and it says nothing about another, and that if it was and that by the way is constitutionally questionable, anyways. Because if you look at all the other amendments to the Constitution, they don't do that. They well, tend to well, apply to all citizens. I don't understand something. If you amend the Constitution, you've amended the Constitution. It's not questionable. We have about 30 seconds before. Uh, yeah, but like, for example, the amendments to the Constitution that raise the voting age to 21, raise the voting age to 21 for all citizens, not just one group because they're parts of people and another group because they're parts of something else. It's okay. an equal well, protection issue, and that's why this amendment is flawed. Well, if it wants to be a Chuck, fair amendment, it will. Because we're out of time. All right, Patrick. All right. Thanks so a lot. We shall return, God willing, tomorrow at 1 p.m. You're listening to Fairness Radio. Check out our blog site, fairnessradio.com. Have a good afternoon, everybody. Have a good afternoon, everybody. And don't forget our sponsor, www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body without expensive or toxic drugs. Good night, everybody. For our blog talk listeners, our radio stations are going into a news break right now. And uh, we will see you tomorrow. And tomorrow, of course, we're going to have a very, as usual, a very interesting show. Um, Tom Thompson, you know, with the Texas Labor will be with us, also a former uh, White House staff and former Republican chairman. They're talking about employment and enhancing kids uh, and a co-author. They're talking to us about a new book that we today in the New York Times called The President's Club. See you tomorrow and don't forget to talk to you today.